Matthew 18.1 tells us that at that time, the disciples came to Jesus asking him a question. And the question is this in verse 1, who is the greatest in the kingdom of heaven? And this is the question that launched what is perhaps the single greatest discourse, the single greatest explanation of both the necessity and the practice of childlike humility among those who profess Jesus as Lord and Savior, among those who claim to follow Jesus as his disciples. Matthew 18, the entire chapter, forms an extended answer to this question describing who the great ones in the kingdom actually are and exhorting each and every one of us to actually live as one of Christ's great ones. In context, the question was asked as the twelve followed Jesus when he traveled from Galilee over to Capernaum, which is Peter's hometown. And as they were traveling on the way, the disciples entered into one of the most one of the single most foolish arguments that any group of grown men might find themselves engaged in. Which one of us is the greatest in the kingdom of heaven? And as they disputed with each other over this question, they did so from the perspective of a first century Jew as those who believed that Jesus, because they understood that he was the Messiah, long promised to the nation that he would soon lay hold of the Davidic crown, that he would be the one to fulfill all of Israel's earthly hopes and dreams, expectations of a restored, autonomous, prosperous, peace-filled kingdom, greater than that experienced even during the time and the reign of King Solomon himself. You see, the reign of King Solomon constitutes for an Israelite the golden age of Israel's history. It was a time when kings and magistrates throughout the known world sought an audience with Solomon because they wanted to hear his wisdom. The reign of Solomon was a time when the nation's prosperity was so grand that the text tells us that silver was as common as stone. The twelve presumed that as Jesus led the nation to this newfound freedom, this newfound liberty, that as Jesus led Israel out from under the grip, the iron grip of their Roman oppressors, that these twelve disciples would all be given seats of honor and influence in this earthly kingdom that he would establish. But to one of them, he would have to give the more honored and prestigious position as first among the rest. One of them, they assumed, would be given the seat at his right hand. And so as they followed Jesus to Capernaum, they locked horns with each other over which one of them possessed the credentials for such a distinction. Now, we aren't told who initiated the controversy among the twelve. We aren't told how long the argument lasted, which of them spoke, or which of them dominated the debate, but we're told enough. We are told that they fought about so ridiculous an issue and this is enough. And they even brought the question to Jesus. Who is the greatest in the kingdom of heaven? Or in other words, Jesus, which of us is going to be the most honored in the kingdom when you establish it? Jesus, which of us will you select as your most preeminent disciple? Jesus, which of us is the best of this group. 
And Jesus, being the perfect teacher that he is, instead of lambasting the twelve for their rather dim-witted question, called to himself a child in verse 2 of chapter 18. And the word here used for child describes a little one about six to seven years old. And he put that child in the middle of the group, and then Jesus looked at the disciples and said this to them in verses 3 and 4. Truly I say to you, unless you turn and become like little children, you will never enter the kingdom of heaven. Whoever humbles himself like this child is the greatest in the kingdom of heaven. Now, I don't want you to overlook the shock and the awe of Christ's answer here. You've got 12 proud men all arguing with each other about which one of them is the greatest in the kingdom of heaven, and here, Jesus completely pulls the rug out from under them. Unless you turn and become like children, you will never enter the kingdom of heaven, Jesus said. In other words, the question, my 12 disciples, that you should be asking is not which of you is the greatest in the kingdom, but whether any of you are a part of the kingdom in the first place. Because this sort of argument about who is the greatest is incompatible with true kingdom greatness. It reveals the complete opposite of the great person in the kingdom of heaven. In fact, only those who are not citizens of the kingdom can so unashamedly take part in such self-exalting disputes. And if one would be great in the kingdom, Jesus said, they must turn. You see that, right? They must turn. And again, the word here for turn is in the passive, meaning they must be turned. They must be born again. They must be born from above. They must be saved by grace alone, through faith alone, in Christ alone, and changed by the Holy Spirit to reflect the values of the kingdom rather than the values of the world we live in. And for those who've been turned by the Lord, for those who've truly bent their knee to Christ as King and Lord, for those who've truly entrusted their souls into His hands as Savior, they, these will, this will be reflected in their becoming great in the kingdom of God as we humble ourselves like children and continue in our pursuit and in our growth and childlike humility. Now, I've heard many appeal to and quote this text to erroneously endorse and call Christians to live a childish faith, as if Jesus were here calling on his disciples to play more tag with each other, or to pick more dandelions, or to fly more kites, or to foster more curiosity and spontaneity, you know, things that children love to do. I've also heard some point to Christ's words here about becoming like children to justify the notion that disciples of Jesus Christ do not need to focus on moving from spiritual, doctrinal, and theological milk to meat. That maturing in the knowledge of our Lord and Savior Jesus Christ as He has revealed Himself in Scripture isn't necessarily a must for the Christian, but instead, like a child, just let it be you and Jesus. For such as these... Childlike, the childlike humility that is called for by Jesus is transformed into a childish faith. And just so we know, Jesus is not here calling for us to be childish. In context, the call is to humble ourselves like a child. The key is the humbling, not the childishness. 
And if you recall, in the ancient world, the culture into which Jesus spoke these words, children represented the lowest levels of the social order. Whereas today we hold our children in high regard and in many ways we shape our lives and our society around the flourishing of our children, such was not the case for children growing up in the Roman Empire among the Romans and among the Jews. There, children existed on the bottom rung of society and culture made absolutely zero concessions for them. So children, like the one that Jesus called to himself in our text and set in the midst of the disciples, were those who possessed no status, no rights, no power, were largely overlooked and ignored. They were completely dependent and so therefore laid no claim upon any sort of greatness. And even if a child might have tried, they would have been ignored. Children in that day could make no demands of anyone, and they understood that in the overall scheme of things, they were nothing, even less than nothing. They simply served as necessary in the household with no delusions about their status, their situation, and they freely and without complaint served as servants to the servants with no regard to their social status. Children felt no need to defend themselves. They felt no need to claw for their reputation because when people realize and recognize and see themselves as lowly, fighting for status becomes a waste of time, doesn't it? And so Jesus, in setting this statusless child in the midst of the disciples who had been arguing over and asserting their own preeminence against one another, called on them to see in themselves the same thing that they see in this child in the midst of them. To recognize that when we turn to Christ in faith and truly become his disciples, we lay down all claims to self and to status and to greatness, and instead we live as those with no misconceptions about who we are. We serve the servants in the household of God. And we do so without complaint. We do so without grumbling. We do so without self-ambition. We do so without demands for adulation, recognition, and adoration from anyone around us. And Jesus, speaking to this same issue, put it elsewhere. In Mark 9.35, for example, if anyone would be first, he must be last of all and a servant of all. And again, in Luke 9, 48, he who is least among you is the one who is great. Humble, childlike believers simply serve one another in Jesus' name with no concern for the advancement of our own names, the protection of our own greatness. And so after setting down this main point, this is the main point of the entire chapter, that true disciples that those who are truly born again humble themselves like little children, Jesus then spent the rest of the chapter teaching the disciples how to put this into practice. And last week, we looked at the first three ways that a humble, childlike disciple of Christ puts this into practice. First, we saw in verse 6, that childlike, humble, childlike disciples of Christ welcome and honor their fellow Christian brothers and sisters as though they were welcoming and honoring the Lord Jesus Christ himself. You read it in verse 5. Look at it. Whoever receives one such child in my name receives me. Now, and listen, when you get to verse 6, the word child there switches. It's not a reference to the literal child in their midst, but is a, um, a description of those who believe in and belong to Christ. Second, 
humble childlike disciples will do everything in their power to keep from becoming an enticement or a cause to sin and stumbling in the life of a fellow believer, as we read in verse 6 and 7. Whoever causes one of these little ones who believe in me to sin, it would be better for him to have a great millstone fastened around his neck and to be drowned in the depth of the sea. Woe to the world for temptations to sin. For it is necessary that temptations come, but woe to the one by whom the temptation comes. See what Jesus said here. The humble childlike believer will prefer a most terrifying and gruesome death to being the cause of and enticement to or one who approves of sin in the life of another child of God. And third, the humble disciple recognizes the importance of their own holiness to the community of faith and so labors to eliminate sin from their own life, waging an all-out war against it, doing whatever is necessary, cutting off limbs, gouging out eyes, because we recognize that it is better for both uh, themselves and for those around us to enter into the joys of life, the eternal joys of heaven in the presence of the Lord Jesus Christ, crippled and blind, than it is to be thrown into the eternal torments of hellfire completely whole. We see that in verse 8 and verse 9. And now as we come to verses 10 to 14, Jesus continues his exhortations to the humble, childlike believer calling on us who truly love Christ, calling on those who would be truly great in the kingdom of heaven to make his precious little ones, our fellow believers, a priority in our own lives. And how do we do that? We do that by taking it upon ourselves as a church and as individual believers to search out and to bring back sheep that wander away from the fold of God. See, for the most part, we've turned this parable into an occasion for reveling in the depths of God's love for us. We can kind of wrap our arms around and be like, oh, this is great, God loves us. And while that's true, while that is a good thing, the parable doesn't end there. It's not simply a, a parable for us to, to revel in the depths of God's love. This parable is a call to action. It is a call to us, his believers, his church, to express love and humility to the Lord by searching out, seeking out, looking for those who wander. And as I was reading the text, I couldn't help but think about the events that happened all the way back in Genesis chapter 4. There we were introduced, there we are introduced to the brothers Cain and Abel, the first children of our common parents, Adam and Eve. If you remember, they grew up. And as they grew up, Abel tended sheep, and Cain worked the ground. And in the course of time, both Cain and Abel decided to bring offerings to the Lord. And Abel brought an offering of the flocks, and Cain brought an offering of the, of the fruit of the ground. And in Genesis 4, verses 4 to 5, we, we hear that the Lord had regard for Abel and his offering, person and offering, but for Cain and his offering, he had no regard. So you see, in, in Genesis 4, the Lord accepts one offering and rejects the other. And why is that? Simple. Faith. Hebrews 11.4 tells us, By faith, Abel offered to God a more acceptable sacrifice than Cain, through which he was commended as righteous. But Cain, rather than humbly learning from the situation, 
Rather than petitioning the Lord as to why his offering had not been accepted, Genesis 4, 6 tells us he was very angry and his face fell. This is the repeated and natural response of the proud and the self-important. Just as an aside, if you want to know how important you are to yourself, if you want to know how highly you regard yourself over and above, how highly you think of yourself as preeminent over and above your fellow believers, consider how angry you get and how frequently you get it. The more angry you get with people, the, more, the higher you hold yourself in your own heart, in your own soul, and in your own mind. And the Lord said to Cain in Genesis 4-7, why, why are you angry? And why has your face fallen? If you do well, will you not be accepted? And if you do not do well, sin is crouching at the door. Its desire is contrary to you, but you must rule over it. Cain, come with another offering. Come with an offering of faith and you will be accepted. But Cain, instead of hearing the word of the Lord, rose up against his brother Abel and killed him. And then the Lord came to Abel and, or Cain and said, Where is your brother Abel? And Cain answered, I do not know. Am I my brother's keeper? It's that question that intrigues me. Am I my brother's keeper? Is it really my job to look out for my brother or my sister in the faith? Is it really my job to know where they are at all times? Is it really up to me to keep short accounts and to search them out when they stray and to rebuke them when necessary and to keep myself from anger and bitterness and pride against them? Yes. Yes, it is. And this is one of the reasons why Jesus equates anger to murder in the Sermon on the Mount. Because it violates our duty to be our brother's keeper. It puts us on the level of Cain as those who metaphorically rise up against our brothers and kill them in the fields. Am I my brother's keeper? And if so, to what degree am I called to keep my fellow Christian? How am I supposed to respond to other believers who labor to keep and oversee me? Because far too often, when we are held account to account, or when we go to hold someone else to account, when we try to keep one another, many times in our anger, we simply up and go to the, sh the church down the street, refusing to take any responsibility for our own growth and holiness and our own obedience to Jesus. May it never be that we become so unconcerned for our own souls that we, instead of confessing our sins, instead of gratitude for those who care enough about us to be our keeper, those who, out of love for us, bring our sin to our attention, may it never be that we respond to those who seek us out by, re by responding to them in a Cain-like manner. See, Cain eliminated what he deemed to be the problem by murdering Abel. 
Now, we don't murder one another, and I'm thankful for that, but today we might leave, or we might hold on to anger, we might be unforgiving, we might hold on to bitterness, all of which Jesus is going to speak to in the closing sections of Matthew chapter 18. You, if you are angry with someone, and you are considering moving to another church because of that anger, or if you're holding on to unforgiveness or bitterness in that Because of that, it is time for you to take your spiritual life more seriously. It's time for you to submit to the Lord Jesus Christ. It is time for you to obey His Word. It is time for you to commit to growing in obedience. It's time that we stopped with the foolishness and we actually examine our relationship with Christ and our commitment to the costly and painful road that is discipleship. And if you are simply willing to walk away from a community of faith rather than deal with relational difficulties, your very soul is in peril right now. Because as Jesus made clear way back in Matthew 6.15, if you do not forgive others their trespasses, neither will your Father forgive your trespasses. Instead of holding on to unforgiveness like Cain, ask instead, What is my role as a humble, childlike follower of the Lord Jesus Christ to my fellow disciples? In the coming weeks, we will see that it includes admonishing those who sin in hopes of their repentance and restoration and repeatedly forgiving those who sin against us. But this morning, we are called to play the vitally important role of seeking out professing Christians who wander away and stray from the flock. And listen, this is going to grate against every one of us. It is a difficult transition to make because we live in a culture that values and extols privacy as a primary value. We live in a culture that says, stay out of each other's lives. Mind your own business. And here Jesus is calling us to be a people committed to keeping one another against that cultural value. We are responsible for each other. And to simply follow the cultural maxim of mind your own business when our professing brothers and sisters put their eternal souls in peril, this violates the word of our Lord Jesus Christ. It breaches one of the fundamental reasons why we exist as a church, which is keeping watch over one another. And so the answer to Cain's question again, am I my brother's keeper, is a resounding yes. Yes, you are. Yes, I am. Yes, we are. And how exactly do we keep each other? Again, in our text this week, it's by pursuing those who stray. In our text next week, it's by disciplining those who refuse to repent. And in the week after that, it's by forgiving those who sin against us. And listen, in pursuing the straying sheep, we imitate the good shepherd. We imitate our Savior Jesus Christ, who himself came to seek and to save the lost. And so we read in chapter 18, verse 10, See that you do not despise one of these little ones. Just look at it. The word see here speaks to watching carefully, remaining vigilant against always being on the lookout for. And what is it exactly that we are to remain vigilant against and constantly be on the lookout for? 
despising one of these little ones. Again, the little ones here represent those who belong to the Lord Jesus Christ. Jesus told the twelve, and Jesus tells us, see to it that none of you think so little of Christ's people because you are so caught up with yourself that you simply refuse or ignore your responsibility to them that you turn a blind eye to, or you disregard the onus put on each one of us by Jesus to be our brother's keeper. Remain committed to their growth into holiness. Remain committed to their increased Christ-likeness. So you remember, right? We are told earlier to avoid being a cause for sin in another's life. And one of the things I repeat to you over and over is Jesus doesn't simply tell us to take things out of our life. He always tells us to remove things so that we fill that spot up with something wonderful. We don't just avoid being the cause of sin in another's life, but we take an active part in promoting holiness and Christ-likeness in their life. Each and every one of us must always be on guard against thinking another Christian simply is not worth the effort. And why? Why is this? Well, look what Jesus said next. For I tell you that in heaven their angels always see the face of my Father. The angels that Hebrews 1 tells us are ministering spirits sent out to serve for the sake of those who are to inherit salvation. The very same angels that the psalmist speaks about when he said, the the angels who dwell in the shelter of the Most High, he says, the Lord will command his angels concerning you to guard you in all of your ways. These are the very same angels that Psalm 34 tells us encamp around those who fear the Lord and delivers them. These are the very angels who comforted the prophet Elijah as he fled from the wicked queen Jezebel when she sought to kill him. These are the very same angels who stood next to Peter in prison and caused the chains on his hands to fall off and freed him from the prison. Now, just for clarification, some have taken this text and used it to promote the idea of what we call guardian angels. The idea that each and every one of us is assigned an angel who watches over us and protects us. This text doesn't prove any such thing. Instead, what is said here is even better. That however lowly in the world, however lowly the world might think of Christ's children, however lowly and inconsequential even you might think another believer is, however insignificant someone might think you are, They and you have no less than the angels themselves considered as a whole attending to you. The very same angels who always see the face of the Father who is in heaven. Do you see the grand status and dignity that these angels enjoy? And appreciate that in both your own and in your fellow Christian's life, no less than these are on your team. Our God has appointed no less illustrious a group to watch over his little children than the very angels who stand nearest to his throne. And this is a reality that ought to both serve as both an occasion for comfort and rejoicing and blessing to the children of Christ, and it must also serve as a warning to those who in their pride do despise one of these little ones. Do you see how the Father in heaven cares for his children? If you are a disciple of Jesus by grace through faith in Him, as the Father so cares for and loves those in Christ, so too are we as a church 
called to care for one another and to keep one another. And one of the great ways that we reveal that care is by searching for those who profess Christ, who are a part of this flock when they wander from the fold. This is what Jesus illustrates with a parable in 1812. Look at the text. What do you think? If a man has a hundred sheep and one of them has gone astray, does he not leave the ninety-nine on the mountain and go in search of the one that went astray? See, this is one of the great tasks and responsibilities set before us as a church, to search for the straying sheep. And thank God for the church in this regard because we are all prone to wander. I mean, we sing it regularly, don't we? Prone to wander, Lord, I feel it. Prone to leave the God I love. We sing that. We sing it with gusto. And we know it's true about ourselves. And so our gracious Lord has established, He has organized, He has commissioned His church to protect us. The church is here to protect you. You are here as the church to protect me. We are here to protect each other by holding each other accountable, by encouraging us to more holy, to, to increased Christ-likeness, by admonishing, by exhorting, and even by rebuking when necessary those who would wander and go astray. And you see, as much as we in our rabidly individualistic society might like to think that discipleship, might like to think that the Christian life is a solo sport, it isn't. You can't do it on your own. I can't do it on my own. We need each other. And while some might say, and it's it's common to hear it, I don't need anyone. It's me, and it's Jesus, and that's all I need. That's just plain wrong. Christ's church, his body, his bride, is a necessity in the life of a Christian. Gathering with, living among, confessing to your fellow believers are non-negotiable aspects of serving and living for Christ. And for all who think they can simply sit at home, and for all who think it's sufficient when they are able and capable of gathering in person to worship, to watch and to worship online, apart from connection to a church, apart from worshiping among a community of faith, And for those who don't think they need to join a church and submit to the spiritual oversight and accountability afforded to them by a community of faith, you are in error. You are living in disobedience to the Lord Jesus Christ. And the call held out to you is that you must repent. And you must recognize that you, like every single one of Christ's little ones, needs the church. I need the church. We all need the church. Now, That's not to say that the church does not have its warts and its flaws and its hypocrites and its sinners. It does. We have many throughout the church in the world. We can be hypocritical and mean and disobedient and mean-spirited. 
But that's no reason to leave the church. When you see that, it is your duty to double down to help purify her. To labor within her, to beautify her. Because Christ is coming back for a pure, spotless, and holy bride. And if you think that you can survive without Christ's bride, listen, you are headed for a most terrible fall. It might not be this particular local church, but you must be present in, engaged in, and submitted to a church body. So that if or when you go astray, like perhaps maybe some of you are now, your fellow believers can search you out and bring you back. And when one of your fellow sheep go astray, you can go out and search for them and bring them back. Because when one of the sheep have gone astray, when a professing believer leaves or departs from close fellowship with the Lord and his people, when a fellow believer quits the battle against sin, does not he, look at the text, meaning the man, the believer, the church, leave the 99 on the mountains and go in search of the one that went astray? Now, a couple of things to note here. First, the word astray is in the passive, meaning the sheep didn't simply wander away, but it was led astray. And the man is not here described as a shepherd. Most seem to immediately default to describing the man who owns the sheep as a shepherd, but he isn't called a shepherd. He is called the owner of the sheep. The owner of the sheep rarely, if ever, shepherds his own sheep, but hires shepherds under him to take care of those sheep. But this owner sees that one of his sheep is gone and heads out to retrieve and rescue the sheep that has been scandalized by those who scattered stones of stumbling on that sheep's path. And this is a good warning for us in our day because we live in a world that is relentless in its efforts to lead Christ's people astray. We live in a world that is relentlessly calling Christ's people off the narrow road that leads to eternal life, trying to lead them, lead us away from the living water that is Christ to the wide road that leads to destruction. As too, as the Lord said through the prophet Jeremiah, forsaking the Lord, the fountain of living waters and digging for ourselves cisterns, cyst, broken cisterns that can hold no water. I mean, just look at the world we live in. We live in a culture where we fan people not to humility, but to increase self-love and increase focus on doing whatever you want, whenever you want, as long as it makes you happy, even if it would lead to your destruction. We live in a culture that encourages people into their own self-delusions, into their own self-sovereignty. We live in a world that hopes to lead people into killing babies in the name of birth control. And not only that, but then we convince even those who call Jesus Savior that this is somehow, some way, some sort of right. We live in a world where sexual deviancy and debauchery and perversion and corruption are hailed and celebrated. I mean, if you're going out and you're shopping right now, you cannot escape it. And even those who profess Christ are seemingly in droves joining in with the celebration. And so many places that call themselves churches 
So many people who profess to be Christians, rather than searching out sheep who are being led astray by the world into the very teeth of the wolves that are hoping to devour them, simply stand back and do nothing. Oh, the account that such will have to give to the Lord for their evil deeds. Oh, the account that we will have to give when, for our approval of sin and refusal to do the difficult work of entering into the world to reclaim lost sheep. Oh, the account that those who simply don't want to face the consequences from the world for standing against its flow and so avoid keeping their brother. We might not be the ones who actively raise our hands against the wandering sheep in the same way that Cain raised up against Abel, but the result is the same. Slain children littered throughout the world because Christians lacked courage and lacked fortitude and lacked commitment and lacked bravery to go out into the world in obedience to Christ's command. And as more churches and as more parachurches, as more Christian universities and Christian schools succumb to the cultural pressure, less and less do we see God's people taking it upon themselves to recognize that it is our responsibility to chase after sheep that go astray. Where have all the courageous and fearless and Christ-fixated, church-loving disciples gone? Where have all who have humbled themselves before the Lord and understand their role as servants with no status in the world and so don't care what the world thinks of them, where are the valiant, the unflinching, and the indomitable followers of Christ who will commit to both holding the line against cultural encroachment in the church and who will lead the church to rejoicing as straying sheep are brought home? Where are the heroes who will crawl across the battlefield as bullets whiz, as, uh, whiz over their heads, trying to grab the injured and bring them back, who try to retrieve the wounded and reclaim them? Where are the daring and the valiant and the resolute who aren't satisfied with staying out of the battle, who because they love Christ and they love the souls of His people, refuse to sit on the sidelines as the sheep are shot at, who refuse to simply remain quiet, who refuse to simply take no position, who refuse to simply let people live or live and let live. When we do that, when the church does that, when Christian organizations do that, the enemy just claps his hands. Yes, that's what I want. I want Christians to do nothing about this. I want them to sit out. I want them to take the cowardly way out. I want them to think that if they stand up, the world will pounce, and I want them to hate that. Where are our heroes? Now listen, this is not a call for Christians to antagonize or to despise the world. It's not a call for us to engage in insults and name-calling and mockery of the world. It's our call to recognizing the present condition of the world, as Jesus said in John 3.17. He didn't come to condemn the world because the world's already condemned. It's us recognizing it and standing in it as distinct, holy, called out, separated ones of Christ. Humbly calling people to salvation and seeking to see people reconciled to God in Christ. Where are our fearless, 
Christian disciples. And in the parable of the lost sheep, Jesus is here declaring that the believer who sins, the believer who is led astray, is no less valuable than the 99 who stay in place. And again, as an aside, some will take this text and conclude from it that God's love is somehow reckless, as one of the more theologically vacuous songs currently making the rounds claims. But it is not. That the man here, who again is not described as a shepherd, left the 99 sheep on the mountains to search for the stray, does not mean that the 99 weren't left in the care of under-shepherds. It doesn't mean that they weren't left on the more rugged and protected mountainous regions where they are cared for, as we read in Ezekiel at the beginning. I will feed them with good pasture, and on the mountain heights of Israel shall be their grazing land. There they shall lie down in good grazing land, and on rich pasture they shall feed on the mountains of Israel. These sheep are on the mountains. This is not a parable about leaving the 99 in danger, as some like to make it. The parable is about going after the single stray because they are that important to the Lord. It doesn't mean that the Lord leaves the 99 unprotected. It means that the Lord will move, or the church ought to sometimes move their focus a little bit from the 99 to the one. The picture is of the 99 faithful followers of the Lord, those who aren't straying or wandering from the Lord, being left in the hands of faithful overseers as the church focuses on searching for and bringing the wayward back into the fold when it, when it is called for. And the church, in taking this responsibility upon itself, reflects the grace of, the God, of our God who is himself the pursuer of his people. Scripture tells us that while we were yet sinners, while we were enemies of God, while we were rebels against God, committed to suppressing any and all knowledge of the truth in favor of idolatry, as sinners by nature and by practice, filled with, engaged in all manner of wickedness and corruption and depravity, when we were completely and totally unworthy of so great a love as His, so precious a mercy as His, so wonderful a treasure of grace as His, God showed His love to us by sending His Son Jesus who took on flesh, made His dwelling among us in order to seek and to save the lost. And Jesus lived a perfect sinless life and secured a full, complete obedience to the law of God. He secured the very righteousness we require if we are to be acceptable in the sight of God. And then Jesus went to the cross and paid the penalty for the sins that you and I have committed against God. He didn't die on the cross for anything He did, but He died in our place. He died as our substitute, and then on the third day, He rose again and later ascended to the right hand of God the Father where he sat down, and that's important because in sitting down it means that the work of Christ is sufficient to save any and all who call out to the Lord in faith. The work of Christ is complete. The perfect righteous life of Christ is applied and is credited to the account of everyone who trusts in him. And not only that, but the penalties due to you and to me for our sin is paid for fully by Christ at the cross. And so by grace, through faith in Christ, we are made perfectly righteous in the sight of God. And all of this because God in Christ came to pursue us and to win us 
for himself and to himself. And if you don't know Jesus this morning, you can, right now, call out to him for salvation. He came to pursue lost sinners. And if you don't believe in him, you are right now a lost sinner and your soul is on the way to an eternal hell. But you can have eternal life by grace alone, through faith alone, in Christ alone. And when you call out to him for salvation, the grace of the Lord will be showered upon you and your sin will be forgiven. So turn from your sin and believe in Christ. And if you do believe in Jesus this morning, then you imitate your Lord. Imitate your Savior by going out like he did and pursuing and, and bringing back straying sheep, winning them back to the fold. Because the joys of seeing people return to the Lord cannot be overstated, can they? That's what Jesus said next in 18.13. If he finds it, Truly, I say to you, he rejoices over it more than over the 99 that never went astray. Note the conditional if here. If he finds it. See, not everyone who claims to be a sheep, not everyone who says, Lord, Lord, will ultimately prove to be a sheep. There are those who profess discipleship, but who fully and finally repudiate that profession and wander away completely. And these, as the Apostle John wrote in his first letter, proved by their actions that, 1 John 2.19, they were not of us. For if they had been of us, they would have continued with us. But they went out that it might become plain that they are not all of us. So those who claim to be sheep but completely abandon their admission of faith, who present themselves as a time, as, for a time as sheep, might in the end perish in the mouths of wolves. And for such as these we grieve, and for as long as we live and as long as they live, we continue to hold out the gospel to them in full knowledge of Scripture's most fearsome warning. Hebrews 10 says this, If we go on sinning deliberately after receiving the knowledge of the truth, there no longer remains a sacrifice for sins but a fearful expectation of judgment and a fury of fire that will consume the adversaries. Anyone who has set aside the law of Moses dies without mercy on the evidence of two or three witnesses. How much worse punishment do you think will be deserved by one who has trampled underfoot the Son of God and has profaned the blood of the covenant by which he was sanctified and has outraged the Spirit of grace? For we know him who said, Vengeance is mine, I will repay. And again, the Lord will judge his people. It is a fearful thing to fall into the hands of the living God. Knowing what awaits those who wander and are never found or restored, we vigorously rejoice when sheep are brought back into the fold. We rejoice when one in great distress is returned and reconciled. When one whose wandering caused great turmoil, whose wandering causes, caused great turmoil, is returned or recovered, joy results. And the church rejoices over that restored sheep more than the 99 who went astray or never went astray. Now, the fact that more rejoicing takes place over the recovered sheep than the 99 who remained in place does not mean that one sheep is worth more than the 99. It simply reflects something that we all know to be true, something that we've all experienced in our life. There are times when, for example, the world is captivated by a situation. 
It could be, as we saw a few years ago, miners, Chilean miners trapped in a collapsed mine with air and supplies quickly running out as rescuers work around the clock to get to them, to save them before it's too late. It could be first responders feverishly picking through the rubble of buildings, collapsed buildings, because terrorists flew planes into the World Trade Center. You remember, if you, were, if you were around at that time, you remember how gripped we were hoping to see survivors pulled out of the rubble. We're gripped by the events and we rejoiced when they were recovered and rescued. But does that mean we don't care about or love the rest of the world? No. Does it mean we don't care about those who aren't trapped in mines or who aren't stuck under the rubble? No. It just means we simply that we explode with joy at the rescue of one that we have been so focused on bringing back. And that's a good thing. And the reason we focus on the rescue of wandering sheep is that, verse 14 tells us, it is not the will of the Father in heaven that any of these little ones should perish. The Father will not ultimately and finally permit any of his elect children to perish something Jesus made clear in the Gospel of John when he said in chapter 10, You do not believe because you are not among my sheep. My sheep hear my voice and I know them and they follow me. I give them eternal life and they will never perish and no one will snatch them out of my hand. My Father who has given them to me is greater than all and no one is able to snatch them out of the Father's hand. I and the Father are one. You see, not one of Christ's little ones, not one of those the Father has given into the hand of the Son, not one of the sheep that Christ has come to save will perish. All of the sheep will hear the voice of the Lord and they will come to Him and no one, and I mean no one, is able to snatch them out of His hand. Not the world, not the devil, not even their own sin because the Father does not give faulty gifts to His Son. Not one of the little ones meaning humble, born-again disciples of Christ will perish, meaning be finally destroyed or come under the condemnation of God. And this because when you come to the saving knowledge of Jesus Christ, there is now therefore no condemnation. The Father's will cannot be thwarted. It cannot be halted. It cannot be challenged. And it is, according to this text, not His will that any of these His little ones should perish. It is for this reason that the Father sent the Son into the world to save the little ones. It is for this reason that, the Father, that Christ came to secure the salvation of the little ones. It is for this reason that the Spirit lives in us to seal His little ones for the courts of heaven above. And the means that God uses to ensure that His little ones are finally saved is the church. We have been established as one of His tools for protecting, searching out, rebuking and admonishing and encouraging and exhorting the little ones to keep them on the narrow road that leads to life. We have been tasked as the Lord's hands and feet on earth to bring straying sheep back. So in closing, to all who right now consider themselves disciples of the Lord Jesus Christ, to all who understand that He is the one who came and sought you. He sought you while you were wandering in darkness and brought you out of that darkness and into His marvelous light. You are indeed 
your brother's keeper. And if you see any who profess Jesus wandering astray or being led astray, it is your duty, it is our duty to try bringing them back into the fold. Because as James wrote in James chapter 5, my brothers, if anyone among you wanders from the truth and someone brings him back, let him know that whoever brings back a sinner from his wandering will save his soul from death and will cover a multitude of sins. Isn't that a great promise? May you be known, may we be known as those who love each other enough to save wandering souls from death. All to the glory of our Lord and Savior, Jesus Christ. Father, we thank you and we praise you for your word once again. We thank you for the encouragement that it is. We thank you for the admonishment that it brings. We thank you for the fact that you didn't leave us groping around trying to figure out what your will is, but you gave it to us so that we can know how to live obedient, Christ-like, mature lives. Father, I thank you for the word that you've set out for us this morning. I thank you for the call to going out and pursuing the straying sheep, those being led astray. I thank you that it is a wonderful um, accountability for my own life if I were to stray to know that I have however many hundreds of brothers and sisters who would come out to reclaim me. And I pray that for those who are wandering now, that it would be a um, most excellent reality for them that this church will go out and seek and strive to reclaim them as well. And in all of it, may you be honored. May you be glorified. May you be lifted high. <clears throat> in Jesus' name, amen.